Well, I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We've been studying the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which give us the foundations of a biblical worldview. This is important. The foundations for a biblical worldview. These chapters help us to understand God, to understand ourselves, and to understand the world in which we live from God's own perspective and according to God's own mind. In the last few weeks, we have been studying the account of Noah and the Great Flood, which spans chapters 6 through 9. But what I hope has become clear throughout this study and what I have tried to emphasize along the way is that this account is not primarily about Noah, nor is it about the flood. The heart of these chapters, the primary focus and purpose is God himself. These chapters are intended to show us who God is, what he is like, what he thinks about the current state of the world, and what he is going to do about it. And so while there are certainly good things we can learn from Noah, and there are important details we should see about the flood, we must, above all else, see God in these chapters. And from what we learn about God, we are then able to understand the details, the other details of these chapters. And furthermore, what we learn about God in these chapters We are then able to understand ourselves and the world around us. So these are, as I have said, foundational and essential chapters for a worldview built on truth. And that is what we need today, is to understand truth. Now, as chapters 6 through 9 teach us about God, They do so with quite a bit of contrast and tension. On the one hand, we see the justice and judgment of God on sin. And on the other hand, we see mercy and grace from God in delivering some from that judgment. In chapters 6 and 7, the heavier emphasis is on that judgment and justice of God on sin. So chapter 6 shows us God's assessment of the sinfulness of mankind and the beginning of his response to it. And in chapter 7, we see the severity of God's judgment and the seriousness of sin as God wipes out all creation in a catastrophic and universal and complete flood. Yet in the midst of all of that, we do see a glimpse of grace and mercy as God sovereignly rescues and preserves Noah and his family. But then in chapters 8 and 9, the emphasis shifts from God's justice and judgment to his mercy and grace. And with the severity of the flood still in mind, we now see God's mercy and grace on clear display in Noah's life as God now prepares and provides for and preserves Noah and instructs him for his new way of life with his family in this new world after the flood. 
And so the story of Noah reaches a climax here. You'd think it reaches a climax in uh, the flood itself, but no, the story reaches its climax here in the, in the beginning of chapter 9, in verses 1 through 17, as God speaks to Noah, blesses him, instructs him, and establishes his covenant with him. And this is no small thing. Not for Noah, and not for us today. What God says in this text has implications for all the world and all mankind throughout all history, even today. So I want us to look at our text for this morning, Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, if you'll follow along as I read. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. As I asked last week, I want to ask again, can you imagine what it was like for Noah and his family to walk off the ark? Can you imagine what was going through their minds? They had been inside that box for 370 days. That's a quarantine, if ever I saw one. 
Ah, yeah, the animals were there too, which made it even worse, I'm sure. But now they come off the ark. The earth is completely different. It's unlike anything they had ever known. The landscape was different. The air was different. The weather was different. There was nothing familiar about this new world. And most of all, they were alone. There were no cities. There was no civilization. It was Noah and his family. And whatever animals came off the ark. What was going through their minds? I imagine it was a mixture of relief and fear. They're glad to get off the ark. They're glad that God rescued them from his judgment. And yet now what? Now what's going to happen? If ever there was a time when they felt small and insignificant, I'm sure now is it. Everything had been lost. Everything had changed. And the terror of God's wrath has now been realized. And no doubt Noah and his family were grateful, but certainly uncertain about what the future holds. Where is God now? And do we even want to be near Him if this is the kind of God that that is who pours out His wrath on the earth? What Noah and his family need more than anything in this moment is the reassurance that God is with them and that He has set His favor upon them. So in chapter 8, we saw the comfort of God's providence and His revelation and His fellowship, that indeed God's favor is upon them and He would care for them in this new life. And now in chapter 9, in verses 1 through 17, all of that becomes clearer as God communicates directly to Noah and to his family. And there is language here that takes us back to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation of the world. And so we are reminded that just as God is the one who created the world, so now God is the one who recreates this world and who is reestablishing them in this world in chapter 9. And now as God does that, he is laying out some foundational principles by which this new world is going to operate. These principles establish the beginning of God's law, but they also demonstrate the compassion and the care that God has towards those that he has saved. And what what God lays out here, as we will see, is universal. It applies to all of creation, and it is everlasting, meaning that it applies to all time from Genesis 9 until the end of the world. And I want us to look at this passage in two simple sections. I want us to see, first of all, God's blessing in verses 1 through 7, and then I want us to notice God's covenant in verses 8 through 17. And I will give you fair warning this morning. We're only going to see the first of those two points. We'll look at the second one, Lord willing, next week. Uh, in, in God's covenant. And so I, I encourage you to come back and, and hear the second part of this study. But I want us to notice this morning God's blessing in verses 1 through 7. We read in verse 1, And God blessed Noah 
and his sons. This is exactly what they needed to hear as they faced the uncertainty of their new lives. Life in this world, life in this new world post-flood is going to be marked by God's blessing. And in verses 1 through 7, God tells them what that means, what that's going to look like. And what God says here is a blessing that is meant not just for Noah and his family, but for all humanity until the end of the world. And what I want us to notice about these, this blessing that God pronounces and God explains for this new world, I want us to notice that it is described or it is displayed in five ways. Five ways. These five words, I did not come up with this on my own, but I saw this presented and thought, this is really helpful. There are five P's or five pros that we'll look at that describe the blessing that God gives in these verses. The first aspect of God's blessing then is procreation. Procreation. God says to Noah and his sons in verse 1, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then again in verse 7, he follows that up. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. How many different ways can he say it? He repeats the concept over and over again and in many different ways to say something very important for their life in this new world. Go, have children, and have lots of them. Fill the earth with image bearers of God. That should take our minds back to chapter 1, shouldn't it? To the original creation mandate where God gave the same command at the creation of the world. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so the idea behind that fruitfulness and multiplication and filling the earth, if you want an image, think about swarming. Think about when you, when you stab a stick in an anthill and you see the black shadow of ants swarm out from that center point to fill the red dirt around it. That's the idea here. Swarm. Fill the earth. And that is a wonderful and gracious gift to mankind, isn't it? Because we have already seen how sinful mankind is and what God does about it. He wiped out the entire population of the world except for this one family. But that's just it. Except for this one family. And when the judgment is over, God is now going to reestablish the creation through this one family. And he says, my blessing is still upon you. My gift is still yours. My mandate still stands. Go fill the earth. Though God has dealt severely with sin, and he will again, his purpose and his design for mankind still stands. And though we are still sinful, God still graciously blesses us with the gift of procreation and the mandate of procreation. It's God's purpose for us. It is God's blessing 
on us. Are there any blessings in this world greater than the birth of a little child? Whether it has been your own or whether it has been a family member or a friend near you, who doesn't look on the birth of a child with a smile? Who doesn't say, aw, there's a blessing there and it is a gift from God. And with this gift, God once again reminds us that mankind is not a threat to this world. He says, reproduce. He says, multiply. He says, fill the earth. Mankind is not a threat to this world. Population growth is not a threat to the earth. And children are not a burden. Nor are they an interruption to life. They are a blessing from God. Yes, they are a handful. Parents, we know that, right? But they are a blessed handful. And they are to be trained up to know and serve the Lord. And they are to be sent out to multiply and to fill the earth with image bearers and servants of God. That is a blessing from God that even in a sinful world populated by sinful people, God gives us grace to live and to grow and to multiply on the earth. His purpose and design for mankind still stand and His care for the good of mankind is still at work. And we see that here in this blessing of procreation and not just in this blessing, but in all the other aspects that we're going to look at. And so we see then not just God's blessing in procreation, but now also in man's prominence. We read in verse 2, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. And again, that should take us back to the original creation mandate in Genesis 1, verse 28, where God also told man not just be fruitful and multiply, but to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's original mandate to mankind still stands, even in a fallen world. And his original mandate was that man should be prominent in the world as a wise steward over all creation, cultivating it and using it for the benefit of mankind. And all the resources of the earth are at our disposal to do that. That mandate still stands. And it is reiterated here. God still entrusts us with the responsibility to steward wisely His creation. And in His grace, He still makes it possible for us to advance and to thrive in the world. And so technological advancement is something that we are to friends. And the, using the resources of this world for the benefit of mankind is something that we are to encourage. But here in verse 2, God adds a new dimension to this mandate, especially as it relates to the animal kingdom. 
I told you at the very beginning of this study, we're going to learn a lot about why the earth is the way it is. And I mentioned including why there is this strained relationship between us and animals, right? Well, here's where, here's where this comes from. There's a new dimension. God brings up here the idea of fear among the animals toward mankind. Now, he doesn't say that mankind's going to be fearful of the animals, but that's natural and some of that's implied here too, if you think about it. But he mentions fear among the animals toward mankind. And on the one hand, that sounds like a negative thing, doesn't it? It sounds like it's a part of the curse. And, and yes, it is. It appears to be negative. But then on the other hand, if you think about it, this is a blessing. It is. Why? Well, think about it this way. I don't know what mankind's interaction and relationship was with the animals before the flood. I expected it was somewhat strained then too. But here, God specifically reveals that there is going to be a certain level of fear that the animals have for mankind, and that is from God, and it is good. If you think about it, animals generally reproduce at a much faster rate than we do, don't they? Right? So we are vastly outnumbered by the animals. Now, when you think about that in terms of rabbits, that's not such a threat, is it? But when you think about that in terms of grizzly bears, or even black bears in western North Carolina, the ones who walk through my backyard, knock over my trash if I put it out the night before, right? the one that stared me eye to eye on the bike trail, right? when you think about those, well, then this becomes a different conversation, isn't it? Because not only do they outnumber us, but think about this. While mankind is called to be the subduer of creation, we are not the strongest creatures on this planet, are we? So what God says here is actually a blessing that the animals... Even the ones who can harm us will have a natural aversion to us. At least to the degree necessary to allow us to freely exercise dominion. God keeps that danger at bay. And I was thankful for that when I saw that black bear on the trail. That, that reminder that black bears in western North Carolina generally don't view us as food. And as long as we give them their space, they don't view us as a threat. So we had a nice little moment. He looked at me, I looked at him, and then he went on his way. And then so did I. But this is part of the newly reiterated creation mandate, that there is going to be this fear. But that is a blessing because God is going to use it to keep the danger at bay so that man can exercise dominion. And so that dominion mandate comes back into focus here even over the animals. That was made clear back in Genesis chapter 1, and it is reaffirmed again here, as God says, into your hand they are delivered. Into your hand they are delivered. What does that mean? For your purposes, for your benefit, for your use on this earth. Now, that's a great responsibility, isn't it? That is a huge responsibility. 
And it is a great responsibility as we remember we are not the owners of these animals and we are not the owners of this creation, are we? God specifically said, into your hand they are delivered, which means I am the owner and I am giving them to you. We are not at liberty to abuse or misuse God's creation. It is given into our hands so that we would faithfully cultivate it and use it for God's purposes and for the good of mankind. So there's responsibility here that we must remember. But we also must remember, this also shows us that man is not just another one of the animals. Well, if man is just another one of the animals, then that changes everything, doesn't it? And it affects the things that God's going to say later, even in this passage. But man is not just another one of the animals, as many in our world today want us to believe. God distinguishes man from the rest of the living creatures. We are set apart with a specific design and purpose and responsibility in the world. And to take that a step further then, we also learn we are not intruders into the animal's world. a bumper sticker the other day it said the earth does not belong to us we belong to the earth and God's word says I have given all of it into your hands so is that statement true on the bumper sticker well okay the first part of it's kind of true Right, Because the earth belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. But God has given it into our And we don't belong to the earth. We belong to God. And God has said, I've put you in here, and I've given you these resources for this purpose. That is a great blessing and privilege from God. We are not intruders into the animal world. We are the rulers of it under God's authority. Now that leads us furthermore to verse 3. We kind of build on that a little bit, and we see not just procreation and prominence, but now we see provision. God's abundant provision for man's needs and for his enjoyment. Where do we get that? Well, in verse 3, we read, he takes this this animals into your hand idea a, a step further. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Well, you can let your imagination run wild on that one. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Simply put, God just put his stamp of approval on eating meat. Okay? And while that might vaguely be applied in verse 2, it is clearly stated here, every moving thing is permissible for food. Now, I'm very thankful that he doesn't command us to eat from every living thing because there are some things that are, frankly, quite disgusting. My son and I watched a video not too long ago of uh, citizens of a particular Asian country who were eating live squid. They were wrapping it around like spaghetti noodles on chopsticks, and they were eating the whole thing alive. And... If you if you want to you want to go on a diet and take away your appetite, watch these videos. It's nasty. 
I say that to say that that, that sets up for what we're going to talk about in, in a moment here. Um, but God says, it's all out there. I'm thankful that we don't have to eat it all, but it's all there and it's available for man's use. Now, I, don't, I honestly don't know if mankind was eating meat before the flood or not. Maybe they were. I don't know. But here, at least, God explicitly commends it. And he states that it is a good thing for a man to do. And that is helpful for us to see today, isn't it? All right? Because in our world today, we have all sorts of diet trends and even controversies about whether we are to eat meat or not and whether it can be healthy or not. And there are even controversies, not just about whether we should eat meat, but where does the meat come from that we eat? And how were the animals treated before they became meat? And so on. And Christians sometimes struggle here on this matter. And we get confused sometimes because of the Old Testament Mosaic Law, which had some pretty strict dietary rules and restrictions regarding meat. But we need to understand that the dietary laws of Israel were intended for a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. And what God says here predates that law and applies to all mankind and is laid out for all people in every place. And so we are not under those dietary laws or any kind of moral restrictions regarding food. So, as a Christian, can you be a vegetarian? Sure, if you want to be. And if you want to choose to abstain from certain foods because for, for health reasons and for diet reasons and for what you think might be good for you, great, do it. Just understand you don't have a moral basis for it. You may have a practical basis, and that's fine. We don't have a moral basis here. All things are given for us to enjoy and to use within God's design and purpose. Now, if you think about that, remember, we're, we're to do all of this within God's design and purpose. That's a reminder that just as we are not to abuse and misuse the resources God has given us, apply that now to the provision and to the food that God commends. We are not to abuse and misuse that either. But think about this. Isn't it amazing that God has given us a variety of options? He could have just said, hey, look, this is the plant that you eat, and it will sustain you for your entire life. And that's it. But he gave us a variety. So this is not just God's provision for our needs. This is God's provision for our enjoyment. Right? God is blessing the earth, not just by making it functional, but by making it enjoyable. And if you think about it, if there's a certain food that you don't care for, you have plenty of other options. Kids, don't hold your parents to that at lunch today. You eat what you're given. But really, in the big picture, right? Or if you are allergic to a particular food, you can steer clear of it and still have your needs met, still be sustained. There are many options out there, and there are so many options out there that, frankly, in today's world, we can eat something new just about every day if we want to. 
God has taken one of the most basic and fundamental needs for life, and he has made it enjoyable for us. Doesn't that tell us something about God and his character? This is a common grace of God at work for mankind. And by the way, that principle, that, that truth, doesn't just apply to the food that we eat. Think back to verse 2. All the animals, this is all given into your hands. Think of all the ways that animals have been used for the benefit of mankind. From clothing, to food, to work, to entertainment and pets, God has allowed mankind to thrive and to enjoy life in this world through the appropriate use of creation. So, as one preacher humorously put it, the whole animal world is for you. So, put on your wool sweater made from the hide of a sheep. Put on your leather shoes made from the hide of a cow. Put on your silk shirt made by a worm and pick up your crocodile purse and put a feathered hat on your head and take your husband and children and ride on a horse-drawn buggy to a restaurant and order a mixed grill of chicken, fish, and filet mignon just so you can have one evening when you fully participate in Noahic blessing. So you're entitled to all of it. And not only that, he says, have a salad. Because the end of the verse, of the end of verse three says, have a salad. You can eat it all. You get the salad from the Adamic blessing, and you get the meat from the Noahic blessing. God has provided for the needs and enjoyment of mankind by his grace, even in a fallen world. What a blessing. But, truth is, sinful mankind in a fallen world will always have a tendency to misuse or even abuse God's provision and blessing. And so we can think of examples in this world of the misuse and abuse of animals, and we can think of the misuse and abuse of substances, and we can think of even the misuse and abuse of food, can't we? And so as we come to verse 4, we see a prohibition, which is also a blessing in negative form, a blessing from God meant to protect man and to keep us from getting carried away. We read, But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. In giving a prohibition, God reminds us again that we are not the absolute authority in the world, but that we exercise our authority and we enjoy what He has to offer according to His design and by His purposes. We are not the absolute authority in the world, but there is a limit to our authority. We are stewards of God's world, and we must use it according to his instructions. Now, in giving this specific prohibition, God is continuing to bless mankind in two specific ways. First of all, by pre preserving his health in a fallen and deteriorating world. And second of all, by pointing his attention to a central theme of redemption. On a very practical and basic level then, God's instruction in verse 4 is simply to kill and cook the meat before you eat it. 
And as I mentioned, there are examples. Yes, there are people in this world who don't do that. But have you ever sat in a restaurant and looked at the little warning at the bottom of the menu that they have to put on there? Consuming raw or undercooked food. Um, I, don't even, I don't even remember the rest of it. You know, runs the risk of certain contaminations and sicknesses and all of that. Well, that's something of the idea here. Now, I, I don't believe that this is necessarily saying that all of our steak has to be cooked well done and that we're not ever allowed to eat a medium steak. I don't think that's the idea here. The idea here is that in this world that is now subject to new aspects of deterioration and corruption, it can be dangerous to eat certain things. And it can be dangerous even to eat uncooked meat. That may have been new to Noah, but we understand the principle behind that. We understand the truth behind that, don't we? God's very practical instruction here is that meat ought to be cooked in such a way that it is not harmful to our health. We know in our modern culture, we know exactly what temperature every piece of meat is to be cooked at, right? I've got a meat thermometer, and all I have to do is pop it in the oven for a little bit and then stick that thermometer in there, and when it says a certain number, I'm like, okay, we're good, right? So our technological advancement has helped us to kind of get this down to a system, and that's part of the idea here. God is instructing mankind in how to enjoy His blessings in a way that's truly a blessing, to enjoy them safely. In other words, God is saying, enjoy this world for all that it has to offer. Just enjoy it in a safe and healthy and godly way. We understand that there are certain things we can consume. There are certain things that we can participate in or use or, or do in this creation that are actually harmful. God is saying, that's not the point here. That's not the purpose of this creation. Use it for benefit. Use it for health. Use it for godly enjoyment. But then on a deeper level, at the same time, there seems to be a spiritual implication here. For one thing, God's mention of blood will carry over into verses 5 and 6. So that indicates there's more to what God is saying here than simply that. And furthermore, blood very quickly becomes a prominent theme throughout Scripture, doesn't it? It signifies life. It signifies that the shedding of, the, the, the shedding of blood signifies death. It is connected to the redemption of God's people. Central to the Old Testament sacrificial system was the shedding of blood, ultimately pointing to the New Testament and the death of Christ on the cross where he shed his blood to atone for the sins of his people. So there is an indication here of a, a spiritual theme and thread running through Scripture, and it highlights the sacredness of life and the command that mankind is to respect that. And that theme is going to grow from here on out. And that brings us to verses 5 and 6 where we see the fifth aspect of God's blessing, and that is protection. Protection. God continues with this idea of blood and the sacredness of life to address and to reemphasize the sacredness of human life. He says in verse 5, 
and for your lifeblood. It's almost like he's saying, okay, now while I'm talking about blood, for your blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. This takes the sacredness of human life to a whole new level. Yes, we are to respect all life, both animal and human, but that is not all the same. They're not on the same level. There is a particular situation in which God will require the shedding of a man's blood or the shedding of an animal's blood for the taking of life. When is that situation? Look at verse 6. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now we're getting a bit of more of a complete picture. We are permitted to kill animals for beneficial use. But no one, no animal and no man, no human being is permitted to murder another human being. Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis 4. And Lamech took murderous personal vengeance on a young man. And in both cases, God did not kill them. Nor did he demand their blood. And who knows how rampant murder was in that pre-flood world of violence. But now, as God resets his creation, and he instructs mankind in how to survive and thrive, in this new world, he lays down a new standard. No one is to take the life of another man. No one is to take the life of any other human being. And anyone who does, whether animal or man, must answer with his own life. This is God's establishment of capital punishment. And it is specifically given in response to murder. And it is also by implication God's expectation that the leadership of mankind and that the governments of the world would take this mandate seriously and enforce it soberly. Capital punishment is a controversial topic today and it is an uncomfortable concept for any reasonable human being. We should not like to talk about it. But it's here. We are not called to like it, and we are certainly not called to celebrate it, but we are called to obey it, to follow it, because it is God's command. It is according to God's design and order in His creation, and it is there for a specific reason. And there is a foundation, there is a divine and theological basis for this, God says, for God made man in his own image. Again, the image of God and man and the sanctity of human life. Man was specifically, specially created by God and set apart from the rest of creation to be the steward of creation and to be the representative of the character of God in the world. We might be sinful and fallen, but that image remains. And we all understand that the death of a human being is significantly more devastating than any other death. And to willingly murder another human being 
is to directly harm that image of God and the image bearer. It is a direct affront to God himself and his design of this special creation. And God will deal with it in a stricter way. And so he sets in place from the very beginning this warning and this deterrent to murder. And yes, it is a deterrent. But even more so, capital punishment is a reminder of the sanctity of human life. And it is an enforcement of God's jealous protection on humanity. And rest assured that if mankind won't deal with this as God has commanded, God will deal with it. So right here at the beginning of this new world, as Noah and his family step off the ark and start their new life, God richly blesses them by reminding them of their exalted status and their protected status in the earth. He reminds them of their responsibility and of their privilege in the world. And that, yes, even in verse 7, as he states it again, yes, that he wants mankind to flourish and to be fruitful. And so he instructs them in how to live in this new environment with health and safety. And most of all, he reminds them of his own presence and care for them. And so in these seven verses, we see that God has blessed the earth and he has blessed all mankind. And he has done so in a tangible way. He has done so in a way that even our mundane and daily activities give testimony to God's grace and blessing. So that every time you eat a meal, every time you taste a food that you delight in, Every time you go out and you see that the bears stay at their distance, right? Every time you, you interact with the world around you, you see evidence of God's grace and God's blessing and God's protection for his people. But behind that physical and that tangible blessing, is God's spiritual blessing, which comes to light in God's covenant, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next time in verses 8 through 17. So let's pray together. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes before I pray, in a moment we're going to be coming to our celebration of the Lord's Supper.